Well, as I say, all good things must come to an end. Uh, maybe you've experienced that in your life. Uh, and we are coming today uh, to the end of the story. Uh, what we usually do here at Genesis Church is we pick a topic that we want to talk about for four, five, six weeks, and we talk about it until we get tired of it, and then we move on to something else. But what we've done this year is that we have talked about uh, the entire story of the Bible for 31 weeks, and today is the end of that. And maybe in your life, uh, you've experienced, had that experience that some, uh, something good in your life coming to an end. For instance, maybe it was a vacation you took. And uh, you had such a great time and you just like dread that drive home or that flight home. You don't want to go back home. Or maybe for you, it's a book that you were reading or a series of books. And you get to the end and it's almost like you don't want to read those last few pages because you just want the experience to last. Or, um, you know, for me, maybe it's a TV series that you found on Netflix or Hulu or something. And you, you kind of binge watched it. You watch three or four episodes a night and then you realize, oh, no, I'm getting to the end. And now I'm, I'm going to reach the end and I'm not going to know what to watch next. And so you kind of slow down and maybe you watch those last few episodes more slowly. You know, and, and so uh, I know our girls uh, love to go to their grandmother's house, and it didn't. It seems like uh, up until about a year ago, it didn't matter how long they were down there for. Uh, if they were there for two days, four days, five days, whenever they would come home that night, uh, one of our girls would start crying and say, "I miss, I miss grandma." And it's like, as a parent, you kind of well, welcome home, honey. We're glad to have you back. And and she's like, "I miss grandma," you know. And they don't want that experience to end. Well. Uh, today we're coming to the end of the story. And I got to be honest, there were times where I was really ready for it to end. Um, and there are times where, like today, where I'm kind of like, oh, I wish we could go on a little bit longer. But we started back in February, believe it or not, with the book of Genesis. And now we find ourselves uh, in, in the book of Revelation. And so we're just about to finish the last page of God's story as it's written in the book, the story, but also as it's written uh, here in the Bible. And so um, we, I hope you know by now, however, that God's upper story doesn't end. Like that it keeps going on and on uh, forever. It, it's uh, one of the great joys and hopes that we have as a follower of Jesus um, is that that promise that we get to live forever in heaven with him. And so uh, what's happened is in, in the story, as that video said, in the beginning, God created all people. He created human beings in his own image uh, for the purpose of being in a relationship with him. Uh, but sin fractured that relationship. Sin resulted in separation between us and God. And so what we've been reading about the past 31 weeks is God's effort through Jesus Christ to get us back into a right relationship with him. And what we've seen over the past 31 weeks is that story actually starts not in Revelation and not in the New Testament, but it starts back in Genesis, that, that there has never been a plan B, that Jesus was it, it all along. And so um, what we see is that the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb uh, provide a way for people to find their way back to God. Now, Revelation is a book written by the Apostle John. John was a man that walked with Jesus. He was one of the 12 apostles. Um, it's the same John that wrote Revelation that also wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote a couple letters in our Bible, so he was a prolific writer. He's not John the Baptist. It's a different guy. Um, but Revelation captures a moment when all believers will be reunited with the God who created us. We're going to spend a lot of time in Revelation, so if you have your Bible, you might open it there. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone or your iPad, you might do that too. But all the verses I think that we're going to cover will be on the screen. But we're going to start in Revelation 21, verse 3, where John tells us this. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so if I were to take the entire book of Revelation and wrap it up into one phrase or one sentence, which I know is dangerous, okay? But if I were to do that, it would be this phrase, we will be with God. Like one day we will be with Jesus. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
And so before we get there, let's start with a little background uh, on the book of Revelation. First of all, it's called Revelation, not Revelations, okay? It's one singular revelation from God. At the time it was written, uh, John had been exiled to an island called Patmos uh, for preaching the gospel of Jesus rather than giving in to the influence and authority of the Roman Empire. Uh, While he is in exile, God gives him this vision or revelation for the future. And what John sees at the time is both about the present and about the future. And with his words, he provides a description for us of what's being played out behind the scenes in the physical world. And so what we see is that God and Satan are at war. And Revelation is really an account in some ways of Satan's maneuvers and plans and, and the way he does, does it. But because of that, and because John is writing to an audience in the first century, one of the things that's really dangerous is for us to... Um, take uh, imagery that's designed for people in the first century and apply it to our times today. And so I just wanted to give you an example of this. I came across this this week. um, And I want you to imagine a thousand years from now that somebody is reading something uh, that was written in Chicago in 1999. All right, just go here with me. Chicago, 1999. It's important to the the story. So this was written by a, a pastor and author, John Ortberg. And it says this, okay, a thousand years from now, somebody's reading this. In, written in Chicago, 1999. Got it? All right. The bull, which once ruled the earth, has had a mighty fall. The great right horn, whose number was 20 and 3, let the reader understand, has departed. And the left horn likewise is gone, as is the third horn, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman. And the hornets and the timber wolves and the beasts of the field have gathered to devour the flesh of the bull. All right, now, I want you to just imagine a thousand years from now, somebody's reading that, all right? Now, most of us, that imagery makes sense to us, at least if we're basketball fans, right? We can say, okay, that's an NBA thing, and that they're talking about the Chicago Bulls, and the right horn is Michael Jordan, whose number was 23, and the left horn was Scottie Pippen, and the third horn was Dennis Rodman, um, who was pierced and dressed like a woman. And, and so um, we can read that and understand that, but a thousand years from now, can you imagine if somebody's reading that? and they read, So there was a mighty bull that roamed the earth, that ruled the earth, and he was killed by hornets? What? That doesn't make any sense. And what about the number 23? What is that? How does that play in? So you can see, I hope, the danger of taking imagery designed for the first century and trying to apply it to the 21st century. So when you see uh, birds or, or bees or insects in Revelation, it's probably not talking about Apache helicopters is what I'm saying, all right? And so anyway, but that, the imagery is not all Revelation is. It's also a promise, Revelation is a promise that in spite of all the persecution and the challenges faced by the first century church, in fact, faced by Christians from that time all the way up until today, you know, that in spite of the trials and the obstacles that you face in your life and that I face in my life, the bottom line is this, that God wins. That God wins. He wins in the end. The battle was decided on the cross at Calvary. And because of that fight, because of that battle, because we know that God wins in the end, we don't fight for victory in this world as Christians. We fight from victory. We know that God wins in the end, that God reigns. Now, maybe you're here and you thought, well, I'm glad you're here because you knew we were talking about Revelation today. And you think, well, I'm glad that we're talking about this. I want to hear Steve's take on end times. You know, maybe you're hoping that I'll make a statement that we're living in end times right now. Uh, or because I want you to know how it's going to go down. Um, well, I'm, if you're here for that, I'm going to tell you you're going to be a little disappointed by today. Um, right? Because if there's one thing that I think most of us can agree on about Revelation, it's, it's pretty confusing, isn't it? It's pretty intimidating. It's a, it's a little bit frightening. And, and so for those of you who know something about Revelation, you know that there are a few different ways of interpreting uh, the imagery and the story in there. Most of these interpretations are born out of a particular what's called a millennial view. 
And what that means is in Revelation 20, it talks about a period of time uh, coming when Jesus will bind Satan and will rule, rule the earth for a thousand years or a millennium, right? And some people say that the book of Revelation needs to be taken literally, and that's what's going to happen, that that period is going to happen. So when Jesus comes to earth, there's going to be a thousand-year rule of Jesus. And then some people think that we're in that period now or that we can kind of bring that period about ourselves. And then still others say that, no, Revelation should be taken figuratively. It's not really a literal statement. And I listen to some of these arguments, and I'll read these books, and I'll think, yeah, that makes sense. And then I'll read somebody who has a, a, an opposing viewpoint and go, well, yeah, that makes sense too. And so um, part of what makes Revelation challenging is that we just get a little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. We only get a little glimpse of end times, just bits and pieces. We, we don't have the whole picture. H- have you ever seen in a magazine or maybe online where they'll um, zoom in and give you an extreme close-up of something and you're supposed to guess what that picture is? You know what I'm talking about? Like maybe it's a, a whole row of pencils and you just see the tips or maybe it's um, fish scales and it's zoomed in real close and then they'll zoom back and you go, oh, that's what it is. Well, I think what John's doing is he's, he's given us that extreme close-up. You know, in this one vision, he's gotten bits and pieces of what the end's gonna look like and he's tried to write those down as best he could. But of all the things that we don't know or we can speculate or we can argue about, here's one thing that we can be sure about. Uh, Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, but about that day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, not, but only the father. And so honestly, I can't help but wonder if some of this mystery is by design, you know, from God, that he wants to help elevate our anticipation of what's to come. You know, but Jesus says that nobody knows when it's going to happen. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what degree they hold. I don't care what seminary they attended. I don't care what books they've written. I don't care what vision they've had. Jesus says no one knows. No one knows. In fact, the only clue that we get in the book of Revelation uh, about when this is going to happen is Jesus says it's coming soon. He says, I am coming soon. And so uh, as a parent, I've really learned to appreciate that word soon. You know, if you're at a restaurant and the kids say, uh, when is dinner going to be here? You say soon, you know. If, if you're in a car and your kids say, Dad, when are we going to be there? We'll be there soon. You know, and from a parent's perspective, it is going to be soon, right? But from the kid's perspective, that can seem like forever. Well, Jesus says he is coming soon. And that's why it's so frustrating to me when people spend so much time making predictions about when the world's going to end or when Jesus is coming back because only God the Father knows. Jesus himself said he didn't know. The bottom line of Revelation is God wins. You know, Jesus will return. The most important question for you and for me isn't when will it happen or how will it happen? The most important question is, will you be ready? Are you going to be ready when it does happen? Do you know him as your Savior and Lord? You know, when John received this vision and these words way back in the first century, life for Christians was pretty horrible. I mean, the Roman government back then had a a goal to eliminate Christianity from its midst once and for all. And so the first people who read these words uh, were living under the persecution of the Roman emperor, a man by the name of Nero. And Nero had a very bad reputation uh, for killing Christians. He he paved the way for the slaughter and execution of Christians. He he had them beheaded. Uh, He gave them over to be devoured by wild animals. Uh, Many Christians were dipped in oil and burnt alive. Uh, for their faith. And so if you were living as a Christian in this day, you lived under a constant death threat. And at this time he wrote this, the apostle John is the only, is the last living apostle. All of the other 11 had been martyred. They'd been killed for their faith. And what the Roman empire realized was that um, that didn't always work out so well for them. 
that every time somebody was martyred, the church would grow even more. And so they see this man, John, and they think, well, he's still a dangerous man. And so we're going to put him on this island out by himself, which is funny to me because at the time John wrote this, he was about 90 years old. So he's like on a walker and with false teeth, and he's dangerous to the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire on earth. But they put him out there. All the other um, apostles had been killed. And, and can you imagine then the sense of fear and defeat in God's people at that time? I mean, think about that. These, these guys that helped spread this faith all over the world have been killed. It, it must feel like Satan is winning, like the dragon is winning, the beast is winning. It's, he's come out of the abyss and he's going to prevail. It looks like the church, which is God's hope for the world, is soon going to be eliminated. And so can you see how John's message of hope can make all the difference? You know, he, he reminds people that, he reminds Christians that things aren't always as they appear. And if you know anything about John, you know that John remembers a Friday. Like the 2,000 years ago now, there was a Friday, the real Black Friday, right? And John was there and he saw what happened to Jesus. But he also saw what happened on Sunday too. And because he saw that, because he has that hope, he knows the message for the church for, and for you and for me is that God wins. So Revelation teaches that God wins. The second thing it teaches us is Jesus Christ is king. In Revelation 1, um, uh, and if you have an old Bible, uh, a new key, or King James Version, it might say this in red because it's the words of Jesus. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Revelation shows us that Jesus Christ is invincible. He conquers death. He conquers the dragon, the beast. He, he conquers the legion of false prophets and, and everyone who sponsors death and who promotes evil. You see, Revelation doesn't have to be a book of confusion. It's a book of hope. It doesn't have to cause fear. It can bring relief. It's a happy ending for followers of Jesus because God's victorious. You know, Jesus is king. Can you, can you imagine how this promise must have encouraged the initial readers and listeners in the church? I mean, would you let it encourage you in the way you read it and listen to it today? And in fact, did you know that Revelation, as far as I know, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promised blessings for people who read it? Uh, which is maybe a bit unusual in that it's really difficult to understand. But if you look in Revelation 1-3, the, thir- the third verse of the entire book, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophe- prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near, near soon, right? And so, but it says, um, take to heart, those words take to heart, the NIV, I'm not sure about that translation. I know uh, when I grew up in the King James, it says, who obey what is written in it. And so I think that's maybe a a little better translation, but that's what John is encouraging us, that there is a blessing for people who read and obey Revelation. And so with that in mind, what I want to do as we explore the end of the story, as we've come to the end of the day, I want to see what this this, uh, book holds for us. I want you to be blessed. And so let's take a look at some of this really complicated imagery and see what it means for us, see what Revelation holds for us. So we're going to start in Revelation 1, uh, verse 12. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. So you read that and you go, what does that mean? Well, let me do my best, okay? The seven lampstands uh, represent the, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor. 
All right. And so uh, whenever you see a lamp or a light or a star or anything that gives off light in Revelation, it's usually talking about the church. And so there were seven major churches in Asia Minor. In fact, if you read the entire book of Revelation, you see Jesus writing letters to each of those seven churches. But the number seven is also a biblical number for completion. And so Jesus isn't just ta- or John isn't just seeing these seven churches. He's seeing the complete church, okay, the whole church. So the seven lampstands are the church. And what John wants us to see is that Jesus is in the center, that Jesus is in control, that he is in charge of his church in the world no matter what, that he protects and guides. He's the one that blesses, that he is full of great love and compassion for his people. Now, the long robe symbolizes that Jesus is a leader. All right, he's our leader, that long robes symbolized power and authority. So Jesus is our leader. The gold sash was a sign of priesthood. And so the gold sash means that Jesus is our high priest who goes in God's presence for us and obtains our forgiveness for us. The white hair reminds, of his, uh, reminds us of his wisdom. Uh, white hair represents wisdom, which is why I'm your pastor, because I have a lot of it up here. Um, but it also represents purity. White represents his divine nature, that Jesus is divine. Um, the blazing eyes symbolize that he will judge all evil. You know, verse 15 says that his feet were bronze, like bronze glowing in a furnace. That represents strength. Bronze was a strong metal at the time. It was known for its strength. And so that says that Jesus is exalted. He has great power. It says his voice was like the rushing waters. Now imagine a huge waterfall. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls or somewhere like that, you can go down below Niagara Falls. My wife and I did this one time. And you can't believe the power that water has as it crashes on the rocks and the sound that it makes and how loud it is. You can't talk to each other down there because there's so much sound. So the, his, his voice was like rushing water. He had a sword coming out of his mouth. That's the word of God. The, 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 the Bible tells us so often is like a double-edged sword. You see that, you know, it's powerful. It's awesome imagery. What is John saying? All this saying Jesus is king. He's in control. He will lead his church from victory all the way till the end. Now, what you find if you read the book of Revelation is full of numbers and symbols and pictures of halos and thrones and lightning flashes and scrolls and people eating scrolls and harps and bowls and incense and horses. And John just keeps coming and coming with these images. Again, they're really confusing. It's a bit of a mystery, but it's still worth your time because blessed is the one who reads it. From beginning to end, John just keeps coming with these images. There's a sun that becomes dark. There's a moon that turns to red. And then all of a sudden, there's what's called a new Jerusalem and glowing and descending from heaven and a river of life and a lake of crystal and a tree of life. And, and, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's so dangerous for us to look at the book of Revelation and to, to declare definitively what's going to happen at the end of time. You see, God gave, Jesus, or God gave John just a peek of what's going on into heaven. Every sentence you read, you see John struggling to describe it. He'll say, and I turned and I saw, and it looked like, and it was like, and he'll say, oh, so many times he says, oh, and I saw, and I saw these creatures, and here's what they were like, but that's not what they were. That's just what they were like. That's what he was describing. And it was just enough to blow John's mind. It was just enough to give him enough that he could write down for us a sample, a a little taste. Uh, I wonder how many of you ever go to um, Sam's Club or Costco or someplace like that. You ever go there? You ever go there on a Saturday? Um, and they're handing out free samples of many of the things in the store. If you ever go on a Saturday, you can pretty much eat your entire lunch at Sam's Club. My family and I have done this before. You go on a Saturday, and they're giving away samples in almost every department of the store, and you'll find, um, like, there's some kind of meat. They'll be handing out bacon. You know, you can try this bacon. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you do this, but I always have to act like I'm really interested in whatever it is they're giving away because it alleviates my guilt. And so you go up there. This is just, probably just me. You guys probably don't do this, but you go up and you go, so what's this? This bacon? Yeah? 
what's that? Oh, that, oh yeah, that looks good. And then you eat it and you go, well, that's really good. Well, how much is that? Well, where is it? You know, where can I find that? And then you, you have no intention of buying it, right? But you, to alleviate your guilt, you do that. And then you go to the next place and they're giving out like potato chips or something. You try those and then you go and somebody's handing out a vegetable and you just kind of skip over that one. But then you go like at the end and somebody's got like chocolate covered almonds and you, you try those and you do the same thing. You do the same story. And then, and then you go back to the beginning and start over again and you hope that they don't remember you, right? And you go back and you ask the same questions. What's this now? Oh, okay. And you go, and if you do that enough, um, you can kind of get full on a Saturday, right? But really, what does the taste do? It just leaves you wanting more, doesn't it? You know, you, you go, it gives, so I think what John's doing is he's kind of, what, what he gives us just kind of is supposed to increase our anticipation for him, our appetite for him. It's supposed to help us, you know, when you're down or depressed, that when you're burned out or worn out, when you're frustrated, hurt, or afraid, remember that God wins, that Jesus is king. The third thing it teaches us, though, is this. He's coming back. That Jesus is coming back. We said a few weeks ago that the whole Bible can be broken up into three phases. There's uh, Jesus is coming, Jesus is here, and Jesus is coming back. And, and the entire book of Revelation is about Jesus coming back. You know, it's one of the things that Jesus made clear on earth. It's promised again and again uh, throughout the book of Revelation that one day Jesus will return for his people. You know, Revelation 22, 7, it says, Look, I am coming soon. There's that word again. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. And then Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And Christ will return. And as a follower of Jesus, we can look forward to his return. We can look forward to this perfect place he has for us in heaven. We will be with him and he will be our God. Nothing again will ever be the same. Now, I want to leave you with a few more things before we wrap up today, a few things just to encourage you and to get you thinking. Um, the first is this. We know that God will keep his promise. You know, there's no place for you to write this in your notes, but if you have some blank lines if you want to write this down. God is going to keep his promise. God always keeps his word all throughout the story for the past 31 weeks. What we've seen is that God wants to redeem us. He wants to bring us back into a right relationship with him. That message has never changed. Like I said, this is not a plan B. God has never lost control. Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. And the book of Revelation is where we see his upper story that we've been talking about this whole series intersect with our lower story. As he once again promises that Jesus is in control. That no matter how difficult or how discouraging it may be or may get, that God wins, that Jesus is king, and that one day at God's appointed time, that only he knows, Jesus will return to take his children home to heaven. God will keep his promise. Now, there's something else. This is so important, um, and it's not always easy to think about this, but when he does return, that everyone will stand before God. The book of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. We will stand before the Lord. For the unbeliever who rejected God, it could be a long, painful, depressing reminder. And for the Christian who even made poor choices, though, it'll be a different experience altogether. If you are in Christ, if you surrendered your life to Him, the day of judgment will not be a time of condemnation, but celebration as Jesus Christ pleads His case on your behalf. And the Apostle John has given a glimpse of it all, and he writes this down for us in Revelation 4.1. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Right here in the middle of the universe is God himself. God is running the world from his throne. And at this moment, all the eyes are not on the beauty of heaven or the unusual creatures. Instead, everyone's eyes are drawn to the center of that throne because that is where God is. 
All of these creatures that are so great and powerful that we read these imagery of, that we're so afraid of in the book of Revelation are staring at God. They are worshiping God. They are saying, holy, holy, holy. God has a place there. And can I tell you something else? That God has a place for us there too. Now, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God has a place for you there, which leads me to this question. Will you be ready? And I don't just mean, do you think you're ready? I mean, can you be 100% sure that you are ready? You know, about three years ago, I took my kids to the state fair. We go every year, and um, they wanted to ride the rides. It was the first time they'd ever wanted to really go in the midway. And we had ridden a couple of smaller roller coasters at like SeaWorld and places like that when we've been, Kings Island. And so um, I was sure that Audrey was ready for one called The Mouse, um, the Mouse is a roller coaster at the State Fair that just has a single car with you and you know, one other person. And so the two of us were riding together and we watched it and it looked pretty harmless. And so um, we got on the Mouse and uh, went up to the top of the hill. We were pretty high up um, and I thought, this is going to be fun. This is going to be exciting. She's going to love this. And all of a sudden we're at the top of the hill and the car turned around backwards to go down the hill. And all of a sudden I looked over at Audrey and she kind of had a look of anticipation on her face and We went down this first hill backwards, screamed around the first corner, spun around 180, and I looked at her face when it stopped, and she went, and she had this look that's like, I am really trying to smile, but I am about to cry. (laughs) This is the look my daughter gets on her face, and at that moment, I looked at her, and I said, she was not ready for this ride. I thought she was ready, and she wasn't ready. Are you ready for that moment? All through the Gospels, Jesus tells numerous stories of helping people understand that there are ultimately two destinations at the end of this life. There is heaven and there's hell. There is no in-between. In Revelation 21, he says, Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. In verse 8, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. John is saying there are two kinds of people that are going to stand before God. There are those who he calls the victorious ones, the ones that have a relationship with Jesus. He says that they will inherit all blessings. They will inherit heaven. And they, then John uses really strong language. He says, the cowards who've turned away from God. It's the people that have refused to call Jesus Lord and King. That's so hard to hear. I love what one local pastor, Aaron Brockett from Traders Point Christian Church, he says this. He says, no matter how you interpret the end times of Revelation, when the apocalyptic dust settles, you want to be standing on the side of Jesus. And the truth is, in the time that we have on this earth, people will choose to love God or to reject God. And the sad part is, it's not just bad people who are going to reject God. It means the hard truth for each and every one of us is we're all, we all have someone in our life that we desperately want to see in heaven. It's not going to be there. Now, don't give up hope. And don't stop praying for them. Don't stop talking to them about Jesus. Don't give up hope. Because as, as, as long as you're still breathing, you've still got a chance, all right? By the way, that also means that um, many of us are going to get this surprise when we go to heaven and we see our friends and our family and we're high-fiving and hugging and shaking hands and we're going to look and we're going to go, Bob? I didn't expect to see you here. <laughs> but that's a story for a different day. So what does God want? Well, 2 Peter 3.9, I think, lays it out really well. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. 
God wants all people to repent and to call Jesus Lord, but for reasons I won't, content, I won't pretend to completely understand, he gives us free will. He, he gives us the will to choose him or reject him. And I want to say it as simply as I can so there's no doubt. There's, there's going to be a day of judgment for each and every one of us. Every one of us will stand before God. And if you make a decision in this life before you die or before Jesus comes again to seek his forgiveness, to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have nothing to be afraid of. On that day of judgment, Jesus will stand up for you, beside you, and plead your case on your behalf. He's already forgiven you. He, he paid the price. He paid the penalty. He took the punishment for your sin and will, you will live with God in eternity forever. But for those who reject the Lord and choose a path of their own, their eternal destination will be found in hell where they'll be separated from the Lord forever. Does that sound exclusive? Yeah, it sure does. That's the hard part about truth is there can only be one truth. Now, please don't understand this day of judgment and the reality of heaven and hell is God's hatred for people who aren't Christians. It's not hatred. It's not that God doesn't love. C.S. Lewis once said that God demonstrates his love and that he allows people to make that choice for themselves. He doesn't force his love on us. Love forced on somebody isn't love at all. You get the opportunity to choose God, to choose Jesus, to choose his love and forgiveness for yourself. You can choose to accept or reject that love. And if you're a Christian, I hope you find that incredibly unsettling. And not unsettling in that it changes your mind about God or about his grace and forgiveness. Listen, none of us understand how truly big God's grace and forgiveness is. We don't know how big God's grace is. But I hope you find it unsettling and that it increases your passion for love and service and obedience and prayer in this world. And can you see why it's so important that we live our lives driven by the gospel of Jesus that we said last week? Can, can you see why it's so important that you pray for people in your life who don't know Christ? Can you see why it's so important that you share your story of what Jesus has done for you? It's an urgent matter. Jesus could return at any time. We need to do everything we can to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people of this world. How many times do we miss the opportunity to tell someone about the love of Christ? People who are desperate to get past their past. Uh, people who are lost and hopeless. Now, are you ready? For those of you here today who have never surrendered your life to the Lord, he's patiently waiting on you. He, he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. That means you don't have to clean up your act before you go before him. Jesus paid the price for sin. He provided a way for forgiveness. If you're sitting here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, don't delay any longer. Reach out to him. Open up your heart to him. You know, pray, Lord, I want Jesus in my life. If you mean it in your heart, he'll come racing into your life and you won't have to worry about your future ever again. Heaven will be yours. You'll live with God in eternity. You know, John 3.16 is probably the most quoted verse in all of scripture. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so John gives us a glimpse in Revelation, but just for a moment before we wrap up, Let's ask this question. What will heaven be like? You ever stop to think about that? You ever wonder? Like, we have so many questions that we ask about heaven. We're so nervous about it. Eternity is going to be a long time. And we're going to be there forever. What are we going to do up there? Are we going to dress like the angels and play harps? Will we get to do things we love? Will we get to be married in heaven? Will we get to have pets? You know, will we live on the clouds and just float around all day? Will we get to see what's happening on earth? We have all these questions. And, and the Bible gives just a little glimpse. Revelation 22, 3 says, the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him, which means we'll have meaningful tasks, we'll have passions, we'll have acts of service to do things that are fulfilling. 
And John gives us just a little glimpse of that, but he also tries to paint a picture for us. But the Bible doesn't say much about what will be in heaven. But what it does say, it says a lot more about what there won't be than what there will be. In fact, in Revelation 21, 3, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them in their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I mean, think about that. In heaven, there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more of all the things we hate in this world. No more New England Patriots fans. (laughs) I'm just kidding about that. But in heaven, there will be no more rejection no more loneliness, no more depression, no more tissue boxes, no more band-aids, no more casts, no more crutches, no more wheelchairs, no pacemakers, no more hearing aids or eyeglasses, no more radiation, no more chemotherapy, no more diabetes, no more malaria, no more bloated stomachs, no more x-rays or MRIs, no more anxiety medication, no more embarrassing moments, no more autism, no more sensory issues, no more bipolar disorder, no more CPS, no more needles, no more surgery, no more taxes, no more bills, no more bill collectors, no more bankruptcy, no more mechanics, no more dentists, no more lawyers, no more plastic surgeons, no more politicians, no more elections, no more funeral homes, no more nursing homes, no more orphanages, no more waiting rooms, no more treatment centers, no more hospitals, no more health insurance. Is anybody else excited about this? There's no more suicide bombers, no more school shootings, no more metal detectors or persecution, no more phone calls in the middle of the night, no more crosses on the side of the road, no more miscarriages or child abuse, no more rape, no more Amber Alerts, no more tornado sirens or hurricanes, no typhoons or cyclones, no more tsunamis or earthquakes, no more pandemics or epidemics, no more coughs, no more colds, no more strep throat, no more head lice, no more pink eye, no more stomach flu or flu shots, no more double chins. No more love handles, no more cottage cheese thighs or crash diets, no more spanks, no more bad breath, no more body odor, no more deodorant, no more shaving, plucking, or waxing, no more Rogaine, no more wigs, no more socks without a match, no more stub toes, no more yelling, no more fighting, no more bullying, no more gossip or backstabbing, no more traffic, no more road rage, no more racism, no more addiction, no more legalism. No more injustice, no more infertility, no more infidelity, no more insecurity, no more infomercials, no more inoperable tumors, no more security systems, no more courtrooms, no broken homes, no more slums, no more human trafficking, no more tear-stained divorce papers, no more pink slips or speeding tickets, no more foreclosures, no more motionless ultrasounds, no more child-sized caskets, No more death, no more sadness, no more loneliness, no more crying, no more pain. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. It's all new. We will be with Jesus. He makes all of this possible. Which leaves only one question. When? How long? I mean, how much longer? And Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And then John says, come, Lord Jesus. And what I want to leave you with today is this, for this whole series is this. With all that stuff that's not in heaven, it sounds like a pretty great place. But what's going to make it truly special is that once and for all, you and I will be with Jesus. 
We will be in the presence of God. We will be his people and he will be our God and we will be restored back to that right relationship that he has desired for us all along. And that is the most awesome promise of all. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for that. I thank you uh, for that promise of a place with just void of all the things we hate. God, all the things that you hate. But Lord, even more than that, I, I thank you that you paid the price for that, that, that our ticket has already been punched. If, if we're a follower of yours, if we believe in you, that, that that's our destination. That's where our train is going. And so I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful that you paid the price for us, that you've provided a way for us, God, that we can find our way back to you because of your son, Jesus. Thanks for him. Thanks for the work that he did on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.